0: Hello and welcome to an APQC podcast. Um, Today we're going to be going over some questions that we had at the process conference. Um, As you might know, anytime you attend a professional conference, chances are that there may have been questions you had that would not have been answered due to time or lack of who to ask. Um, But at APQC's process conference in 2015 um, in Houston, Texas, we had a voice of conference board set up to be sure that we not only capture everybody's unanswered questions, but that we eventually answer them. At the end of the conference, APQC employees and even some conference attendees answered about seven of them live in front of the whole session, uh, but we really wanted to make sure that all of the other ones were taken care of as well. So here on today's podcast, we have Jeff Barney, a senior advisor in our advisory services group, and Holly Like Hogland, the process and performance management research program manager. And they're going to discuss and answer all the remaining questions that were asked by conference attendees at our process conference um, in October of 2015. So I want to start off by saying thank you to um, both Jeff and Holly for your time today, and I really look forward to today's discussions. So what we're going to do is I'm just going to go through the list of questions that we weren't able to answer, and um, Holly and Jeff, you guys can take turns um, answering them as you see fit. So I'm going to go ahead and get started with the first one. So um, how do you get better adoption straight out of the to the excuse me, how do you get better adoption of a straight out-of-the-box process classification framework or PCF to keep connecting to other detailed KPIs um, data and benchmarking?
1: Thanks, Sarah. Jeff Arney here and I'll take that one to start. Um, So what we found is, and there's really there's really two parts to this question, getting the adoption and then keeping the connection. So um, what we found as our research and interactions with other organizations uh, has has played out, is that the most successful approaches is is to really start with adopting the framework, as close to out of the box as possible, um, and then adapting it later. Um, So I'm going to just touch on that point a little bit more before I go on to the connection part. in adopting a PCF, what we find is that there's there's a numerous uh, industry-based frameworks and a cross-industry framework, and what we'll find is that there's a an organization may actually be a blend of different industries. So so there may be some tailoring or adaptation right away, just to make sure that the framework itself fits your organization, and you may also want to change some of the nouns and some of the elements there so that it speaks to your language, but to do a very custom-based uh, framework. That, that's a lot of extra work. And until you put it to use, uh, it doesn't make much sense to go off and overly customize the framework. So that's the methodology behind adopt and then adapt. Do the minimal amount of finding the right pieces and ensuring it represents your organization, then put it to use, learn from that, and then you can do more adaptation of the framework later when appropriate. Uh, so with that in mind, place. Once you've got a framework, whether it's actually purely out of the box or that m- most basic uh, kind of simplification, the next step is to say what existing KPIs and benchmarking data exists within your organization. And and the, this step typically is what we call an overlay or, a, or a, a mapping. You take that and you map it to the elements in the framework itself. Um, where, where are they uh, relevant? Where are they used? You may find a KPI actually relates to multiple processes in the framework. Uh, same thing with benchmarking data, and so that's the key. It doesn't have to be clean one-to-one, but you want to know where those existing KPI's and benchmarking data fit to the processes. Um, the next step then you can look at it is to say, are there gaps or possible improvements that we can make to the framework itself to get closer to the one-to-one, or Again, to fill critical gaps where you may not be collecting the KPIs and data. Um, And and that's really where the value add starts to accelerate. Um, And and what we find is that organizations over time will go through that in an iterative cycle based on critical need, where there's strategic uh, imperatives, where there's uh, that that burning platform where you've got to make a change or a fix or get some of those external insights for, for benchmarking data. So you don't Wholesale go and try to do it for everything, but focus where the need is, and and what you'll find is that over time you will slowly iterate and get a clean alignment of KPIs, data, and the framework that fits your organization. So, so those are really the three steps, adopt and adapt, do that mapping or alignment of what you've got, and then identify gaps and additional needs or improvements, and then do that, that iterative cleanup to really get that benefit.
2: That's it. Uh- I so Jeff, there's one other thing I'd like to add onto that. Um, the PCF itself is meant to be a reference tool for organizations, like Jeff said, and um, going along with that adopt and adapt. There's aspects of the PCF that make it easy for organizations to kind of help adopt it straight out of the box, uh, but also to keep an eye on when you're making those adaptions. Uh, first off, the PCF, if you look at the elements, there's a unique ID number for every piece of the PCF. And the idea behind that is it creates traceability. So even as you're changing things, you can always go back and reference and find out what that out-of-the-box meant originally. A lot of the PCF also have definitions and suggested KPIs that you can use to help with that kind of of out-of-the-box approach. And all of those directly link into our OSB data, our, our benchmarking portal data. So you can look at and see what are some of the common KPIs and benchmarks Um, as you're looking at your process journey
1: as well. Yeah, great great point there, Holly, and and that's the key. We typically refer to all of that as traceability and maintaining traceability. So as you may pull different pieces from other uh, process frameworks or even external frameworks that you might use, whether it's SCORE, ITIL, COVID, or some other model, keep traceability to, to the source so that you can leverage, for instance, the APQC knowledge base and benchmarking portal and know how you can take your customized modified versions and, and get alignment back to all of that wealth of benchmarking data. So, uh, yeah, a great, great ad there, Holly.
0: Great. Thanks, both of y'all. Uh, I'll move on to the next question here. How do you make business process management or BPM sticky?
2: Uh, I'll take that one, Sarah. Um, really, there's one major way and I'll go into this a little bit more detail, to make BPM sticky, and that is value. You have to show and understand the value of BPM and, and communicate that effectively throughout the organization. And there's really kind of two parts to that. The first part is you have to make BPM sticky for leadership, which means BPM has to support and align with what the business's goals are, what its objectives are, and we kind of refer to that as strategic alignment. So, what the purpose of your BPM should match what the organization ultimately wants to do. Now, the second part of that is that you also have to show the value to your frontline workers and get them to understand how it's going to create value for what they do. And a lot of that has to go down into kind of change management practices. So, you start with kind of that big picture value of what BPM is for the organization, and then you engage and communicate with your frontline workers to f- understand how it's going to improve what they do on a daily basis. Communicate that message, understand how they, they feel about that and just kind of repeat that information. So by showing the value to them both at kind of the organizational level and the individual level, you can get buy-in on it and that will get them to start thinking about things in a process way and understanding the value of going moving to that process thinking.
1: Yeah, and building on that just a bit. I think the value piece is critical, Holly, and one of the things we find with with business process management is that you have to avoid it being busy work because that will alienate people very quickly Uh, and they don't see the value in just this uh, body of, go and map all of your processes. Uh, Those edicts typically fail or fade away over time and don't produce the value. Um, And the second piece is that you want to leverage business process management to simplify what and how you manage the processes. And there are a number of techniques to help you to simplify process um, that really does show the value and, and allow people to get the work done more effectively and achieve the goals and objectives more effectively. So, so really focusing on avoid the busy work, doing it just because someone said, and focusing on whether it truly is value and, and critically trying to simplify, taking what's complex and making it simple, whether that's through help text or, or guides, whether it's through uh, you know coaching and mentoring or whatever. Uh, try to simplify and don't over design your processes. Look for the simple ways to manage the work.
2: Excellent points. Thanks, Jeff.
0: All right, moving on. Uh, what is the basic road to start the journey of process management?
2: So I'll take that one. Uh, I know, Jeff, you kind of addressed some of that earlier with the adopt and adapt workflow in the first question, um, but really I think there's one thing that we, when you're going to go to that kind of basic roadmap, you've got to start first, which is why are you doing this? Um, you need to understand why the organization wants to kind of start or why you know, the team wants to start on that journey of process management, and that's, again, pulling back to understand what is our ultimate goal. Are we doing this because we're trying to create standardization across the organization because we grew up through mergers and acquisitions? Is it because we're trying to uh, reduce costs, reduce cycle time, things along those lines as well? You have to have that kind of really there in the forefront for your starting point because that helps create guidelines around everything you do, helps prioritize what activities you're going to do, what activities you're not going to do. Uh, the second step, then, is really just kind of understanding your current state. Now, there's a lot of ways you can go about doing that, but understanding where what is the state of your process management already. Do you have pockets of groups that do it? Uh, do you already have process framework in place, but it's not effective? Um, again, some people do it through a simple survey. Some do it through checklist conversations with management and frontline workers on what process already looks like. And then the next step is typically kind of that adopt and adapt. So using a reference model to help create some organization and and some quick wins developing out that mapping effort to discern what your processes are consistently. And then once you have that established, aligning and putting performance against them, figuring out what the gaps are, and then that kind of that improvement cycle afterwards.
1: Yeah, I would add two uh, short points here to, to go with what Holly said. The, the first is that um, you know, we, we at APQC think about what we call the seven tenets of process management and, and they're the common characteristics of any successful process management approach in, in an organization, all types and sizes of organizations. And what we find is that you really need to think about a balance across those seven tenets, some governance, some alignment to what's important, strategic alignment we call it, the change management, how do you engage people? The process documentation itself, You know, what are the techniques and how do you identify and, and manage improvement of processes and how do you apply technology? Those are the, and then the measurement aspect, how do you actually perform, measure and, and understand what, how you can control the output of your processes? So a balance across those is something that you should consider as you're getting started. Um, because what we find is often organizations will say, We didn't think about governance, roles, standardization, et cetera, up front. Everybody went off and did something different, and it's very hard to then get everybody back on the same page. So a little bit of governance, a little bit of alignment, a little bit of engagement, change management, et cetera, goes a long way towards an effective approach that you can learn from and then grow and mature. And that's to my second point. Sorry, that wasn't very short. Uh, The second point I'll keep short, and that is that uh, there are a number of process management maturity models and other types of assessments out there. APQC has a simple one and some some that are a little more detailed. And that's a great way to do that current state, kind of what do we have and and what do we need to do then to get it onto kind of a single playbook and approach. So uh, be looking for those types of, of tools out there that can help you assess what you've got. And then you can build that kind of what are those appropriate next steps to build that balance I mentioned.
2: Okay. So I will go
0: to the next question then. What are some simple tools or actions that can be taken back and implemented?
2: That sounds familiar. Um, It's actually a great question coming off the one that that Jeff just, the additions Jeff just had. Uh, We have a lot of simple tools or actions. Um, I really think the big picture and the thing most organizations kind of tend to struggle with is, is understanding what they want to accomplish and where are they. So we do have several tools, like Jeff mentioned, that BPM maturity assessment. Um, We've got a lot of reference models that organizations can can take with them, so some case studies that show how organizations did that current state, as well as some tools like some checklists, some documents. Uh, We have a process definition, documentation, uh, other supporting tools like CYPOX. CYPOX are a great way uh, to understand your end-to-end processes and see how they all fit together. I think, the, and then also RACI charts, knowledge management, things along those lines.
1: Yeah, I think that's great stuff. And, and uh, you know, I'm just uh, stress maybe the, race or the, uh, the side box and the RACI charts a little bit. One of the things we find is that often organizations will jump right into process mapping, drawing flow charts, and doing very detailed process uh, capture and design. Uh, but where the biggest challenges are is the handoffs between people. And so the RACI charts, roles, responsibility, accountability uh, is very important. And if you can uh, define that, and then the SIPOC, what are the inputs, the outputs, who supplies them, who uses them, consumes them? um, What you'll find is you understand the interaction of the work, and there's where, again, most of the challenges and efficiencies lie. So without ever doing a process flow, if you do a RACI and a SIPOC, you have the ammunition to do fabulous improvement. Um, so that's why we really stress those two tools in particular rather than jumping right into process mapping and getting lost in the details because it's the boundaries between processes and how they connect that really offer huge potential improvements.
2: I was On top of that point, one of the things we, uh, why those two pieces are specifically important is one of the things we see is that when people start their process journey, part of what they're trying to do is move away from functional silos and functional thinking to thinking end-to-end processes. And by using those tools tools early, that helps you start establishing that kind of thinking and understanding throughout everybody who's engaged in the journey.
0: Okay. The next one is how would you address cross-functional processes?
1: This is Jeff. I'll jump into that one. Um, so cross-functional processes. Let's just start real quick uh, and kind of differentiate what is a cross-functional versus a linear or, or more functional process. If you look in the cr- the process uh, classification framework, it is primarily a, a hierarchical decomposition uh, and, and aligns very cleanly to functions or disciplines like engineering, manufacturing, finance, etc. And what it does is it says this is the work you do at a very high level, at the upper levels of the framework, and breaks it down into smaller and smaller sub-processes, if you'd like to call them that, activities or tasks, smaller pieces of work that get down to almost to where individuals may be doing something hands-on. So when you think about that decomposition, it really focuses in on how do I do this specific thing? But as we just talked about with the Cypox and, and the interconnections, very few things in any organization a single person does it, and it's done. It really is the interconnection of numerous of those processes in the process classification framework. So a cross-functional process is how those different parts, pieces of work, how those different processes connect and flow, and the inputs and the outputs and the interaction between the people that do each of those pieces of work from the initial need, business need or customer request to the fulfillment and the support on the other end. So cross-functional processes are those interconnected pieces. That's pretty important though in this conversation because in addressing cross-functional processes, the first thing you have to do is say what cross-functional processes are important for our business because there are literally thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of potential cross-functional interactions that occur, but they're not all as important. Typically, you'll find what organizations may call value streams or enterprise processes, end-to-end processes. These are the high-level, big-picture, critical. Order to cash, you know, um, idea to market. Um, You know, it could be uh, forecasting that ties together sales and manufacturing and and fulfillment. These high-level things that get done, and that'll become what you might call a playbook. There may be three, five, ten of those, 15 of those. Critically strategically important cross-functional processes. So those are, are those are ones that drive your success as an organization. There also may be some cross-functional processes at, at the lower level um, that you might want to focus. So thinking about all of those, the first step typically is to identify them. What is the cross-functional process and define its kind of boundaries? What's included, what's excluded. Um, its strategic importance, you know, whether it's driven by high customer touch, uh, you know, high. Dollar value, high risk, or complexity, um, you know, getting that list. These are the ones that we need to manage as an organization. And then the next step is to say, well, who should own that process, that cross-functional process? Because oftentimes one of the challenges is, and everyone says, well, I own a piece of it, but no one owns the end-to-end compilation of that cross-functional process. And without having an owner for that process, you'll run into a significant number of problems. And uh, and so we'll come back and talk that more a little bit later, I think, in this conversation. Um, So identifying the processes that you want to manage cross-functionally, making sure that there's some level of ownership. From that point then, the next step is to go into the process classification framework or your process architecture and say, which of those those elements are now part of this cross-functional process? Identify all the pieces, all right? Everything should be available in your process framework, all right? and you identify all the pieces that have to string together, now you know that those are the pieces that may be discreetly defined, documented, and managed, but now I have to make sure they fit together cohesively for the end-to-end good of this cross-functional kind of flow and process to deliver the end-to-end value. Um, What we may find, though, is that there may be some gaps. Well, we aren't sure that everything is there. That means that you have to say which pieces are missing. Either add it to your framework or make sure that one of those pieces in the framework may need to add that level of work, that effort, that connection, that output, for instance. All right, But all the pieces should be there. So you can close those gaps and then define end-in-performance, KPIs, benchmark it, leveraging some of the things we discussed earlier, um, and ultimately prioritize and improve the end end flow to achieve the overall business objectives, needs, customer requirements, et cetera. So so that's a a kind of an approach for addressing cross-functional processes. Identify, ensure ownership, build them from the elements of your process classification framework, close any gaps, and then look to measure and improve. Uh, Just a couple of additional
2: points on that. As far as identifying um, which ones are strategic in nature, so uh, seeing people do kind of a pyramid approach with their cross-functional processes. So the strategic competitive advantage ones to the core ones, and then to support ones, ones that that connect your core with those strategic ones. And as Jeff said, you usually start with the strategic ones. And people sometimes struggle with figuring out, well, which ones are we prioritizing here? And really, the advice we've given people is to take a step back and understand what is your organization's competitive advantage. Is it your speed to market? Is it your innovative product ideas? Is it your great customer service? Um, And figuring out what that competitive advantage is. And then from there, take a look at what are the big end-to-end processes that kind of go off of that. And that will help you help prioritize that handful of end-to-end processes you want to start with. Okay. Well, this que- this next
0: question um, is uh, almost directly related to the last, uh, but what is the best way to get cross-functional process ownership?
1: So I knew this question was coming, and that's why I started the discussion, but didn't complete it on the last question. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, cross-functional process ownership, as I said, critical to know and establish ownership for those, those processes, especially the strategic, et cetera. Um, With that ownership, then, the question is, how do you get it? I'm going to start with uh, kind of what we've learned through our research and interactions with organizations. The first thing is that because it's tying together different functions, departments, um, and and groups, it has to be a senior leader that owns a cross-functional process. Someone that, one, is sufficiently high enough up on the food chain um, and also has some purview or visibility across different parts of the organization. Uh, not that this always goes to the C-suite, uh, but what you'll find is that best practices there should be only one owner, and it needs to be a senior leader um, is, is the first key there. So you have to identify who that person is. Um, it's interesting. Sometimes, if there's uh, you know executive level or senior leadership team level support for identifying the, pro- the cross-functional process in the first place, then they can top down assign or or, or anoint that person that is the cross-functional process owner. But if that's not the case, if you've identified some critical cross-functional flows and you're trying to work that bottom up or or from the middle, um, oftentimes then it gets back to that concept of engagement that Holly talked about earlier. So what you need to do is identify who you believe is the correct senior leader that should be the owner. Um, You need to then engage them, uh, connect with them and talk to them about the importance of the process and and get their buy-in. Talk to them about what process ownership is. What, if you, what is, what is required of a process owner that's different than owning a function or a business unit, et cetera. Um, and, and that means that back to the seven tenets and defining governance, you need to define what the roles are. Um, so so I'll, I'll talk more about that, there's a question coming up on that. Um, so and then the final piece for, for the process owner, especially if you're you're whether you're they're appointed and, and assigned, or whether you're trying to get their buy-in and get them to step into that role, uh, the final piece is that you have to help to kind of train them and support them in doing the work. Because if they're a senior leader, they're not going to go off and do all of the hands-on analysis and identifying all the pieces and all the documentation. There's going to be a team of folks that support them, and so it's really important to support them and to guide them but they have the authority and the accountability to ensure that the cross-functional process is understood, designed, documented, measured, supported, and improved, continuous improvement, et cetera, but that's really what's going to come down to when we talk of what are those key roles, and I'll, I'll talk more about those in a bit. So, so I think from, from, from getting them getting that cross-functional ownership in place, Um, You know, there's really those two approaches, top-down or bottom-up. Top-down, they're appointed and you have to support them and and enable them. Bottom-up, you have to get their buy-in first and then support them and enable them.
0: All right, well, you are right about another question coming up. The next question is, what are the common roles and responsibilities of process owners?
1: Super, so I'll just keep going and Holly, jump in as, as needed here. Um, what we find is that there are two types of process owners. There's the cross-functional ones, right, that have this interconnection of, of n- other processes that are in the framework. And then there's more of the functional or, or, or you know, uh, targeted, more discrete process owner. Um, so I'm going to start with the, with the latter, with that kind of functional or, or discrete process. For every element in your process framework, that's a piece of work that you do. It's a process. There should be a process owner. And so the responsibilities for that process owner are what I kind of said a a moment ago. They should should understand the scope or boundaries of that process. What's included, what's excluded. They should establish or have a support team to help them to design that process, document that process. That can be through SIPOCs and RACI charts, it can be process flow diagrams, whatever the governance dictates should be in place for your processes. Um, they should also ensure that you understand how you're going to monitor, measure, and control the execution of that process. They should be re- accountable for identifying improvement opportunities, prioritizing and deciding when to make a change or improvement. Because Just because you can, can fix it doesn't mean you should. And they should also then be uh, responsible to think about that kind of technology and how do we leverage automation technology to simplify to uh, you know, reduce time, uh, workload, cost, etc. cetera. So there's a number of things there that, that the process owner should have oversight to. And you'll see that aligns back to the seven tenets uh, that I mentioned earlier. For that process, how do we govern it, how do we design it, how do we support it, how do we measure it, how do we fix it or improve it, uh, how do we enable it through technology. So you could, it's a microcosm of the seven tenets for those process owners. The key is that they should make sure that discrete piece of work is understood and documented in a, in hopefully as simple of a fashion as possible to drive the business results you're after. So that's the additional piece. They should understand the business needs and requirements and the customer uh, you know, factors for that process to drive all of the rest. So that's kind of a, a functional or discrete process owner for each element in your framework. The cross-functional process owners, again, still have that kind of oversight for kind of design, document, measure, control, improve, but it's different because if they're building their processes, if the processes are really the interconnection of all those other discrete processes, then they shouldn't be designing the discrete pieces. They should show how those discrete pieces fit together, and if a change is needed in one of those pieces or how they connect, then they work with those process owners to make the change. That's the key. The cross-functional process owner is really kind of like an orchestra conductor bringing together all of the pieces in the band and ensuring that they fit together and play in harmony. So they shouldn't dictate or design for the others. They should bring them together to make sure that they design and fit cohesively together. Similar responsibilities, but slightly different in the execution between a cross-functional owner and a discrete or functional owner.
2: Say, Ollie, do you have me. anything to add? Actually, I was going to say, I had one thing to add to the cross-functional process owner. And, and if you kind of pull back on why a lot of people go on a process journey, it's because of some of the issues with silos uh, and functions, right? Uh, we see that, you know, when you have not end-to-end processes, people tend to make corrections or improvements to one part of that end-to-end process without thinking about the effects it's going to have on other groups, right, or other functions. Um, and one of the big roles of the cross-functional process owner is to make sure that improvements are balanced and make sure that improvements in, say, one area are not going to negatively affect and actually make the process worse in some of the other areas. So part of that is, is kind of keeping that balancing act and, and working between the two functions and, and making them work together more effectively.
1: And as you can see, a great point, Holly, Um, what that means is that there is an interaction or or a relationship between these process owners, and when they identify a potential improvement, if it's one of those discrete process owners, um, they have an obligation to communicate to those that they're connected to, their peers, but also if there is a cross-functional owner above, communicate, here's where we see uh, an opportunity to improve, here's what we suggest, but they shouldn't unilaterally make that change because it could throw the entire value stream or cross-functional process out of balance, as Holly said. So it, it, it really helps to avoid de-optimization or breaking something else when you put this structure together between these process owners. Very very powerful, but it means that they have to communicate and collaborate. They can't unilaterally go off and just do what they think is right for them. Uh, because we see time and time and time again where that actually breaks. Uh, the, the end-to-end continuity and, and can be problematic in all organizations.
0: Okay. Let's move on. How can teams that are not dedicated to process or process improvement but value those and would like to apply the principles, how can they focus on value and prioritize what actually needs process?
2: Um. I'll take that one, Uh, that's kind of leads into a lot of points we've already made, especially looking at kind of how to get started. Um, Not everything needs the same level of process attention throughout the organization. I think during the conference we had a question about how much mapping was too too much mapping, and, and that's something you can see people get into that mindset that everything needs to have process attached to it. Instead it really needs to focus on what's the value for the organization, so, again, pulling back and understanding what's the competitive advantage of the organization, what are its strategic objectives, and what processes or, or work that the organization does touches on those factors. And that's really the area that you want to prioritize and look at those. A lot of the times they're much, you're much higher level processes, um, so those end-to-end or the l one so the top process categories and the PCF. Starting with those and kind of moving down from there. Um, Again, you can prioritize it based on competitive advantage, what's high complexity, what do we do all the time, uh, where do we have gaps uh, within the groups. But the main thing is it's it's what's the value added, be that revenue-oriented or be that customer value. And kind of starting from that point. What that also does is help to give you and build a business case for the importance of process as you're moving forward. Uh, Because showing the value to what the organization cares about, and you're improving the organization's performance by prioritizing those things.
1: Yeah, I'd add just a little bit on that, kind of again reiterating some and connecting the dots from what we've said already. Um, When an organization, if you don't, if you're not a centralized driving process for the organization, a process management team, but you you recognize the benefits, and you want to do it for whatever you can control, that if, you, if you look at the seven tenets of process management and say let's make sure that we, we address those and, and use that so that whatever process work we do decide to do, uh, we're doing it in a way that has that balance. Um, the second thing is oftentimes what we'll tell organizations to, or groups is as you're doing that, think about how it, if, if other parts of the business start to do the same thing, how it would fit together cohesively. So leverage a fr- process framework that you think would work for everyone. Um, Make sure that you're building your documentation in a way, whether it's a SIPOC or a RACI, that would help to collaborate across different functions, departments, or or business units. So think about doing it in a way not just what's right for you, but what would be right for the enterprise and helping to collaborate. Uh, Because that now will hopefully show them the value and help you to integrate what you're doing if they decide to adopt similar process management capabilities. Very, very powerful. To think about doing it in a way that will work for everybody not just what's right for you Uh, so so a couple of additional points but as as holly said focus then on where there's value and where where the priorities lie for because if you don't get business engagement and you don't demonstrate why it's important to leverage process for the business then doing it right doesn't matter um, if you don't show to people that this makes a difference and truly does let you run the business more effectively and get higher performance and results.
2: I had one more point to add to that, and it's just a little tactical piece that I've seen some companies do. So they'll take things like the PCF and use that as a framework. What they'll then do is use a color code um, for especially like the level one and level two elements to identify which ones are high value to the organization and then also assess what is their current status on those. So if it's high value and its current status is it's not well performing, that's just another way to kind of help you figure out where to focus your efforts.
0: Okay. So, let's see here. The next one. What are details? What are the details on governance structures around business process business process management models? Excuse me.
1: That's, a, that's an interesting one. Uh, I'll jump into that one. Uh, so governance, one of the critical things and what we as I mentioned earlier, what many organizations will say is we never thought about and put in place enough governance up front. Something that ties us and binds us together into a cohesive approach. So um, So when I think about governance for process management, uh, there's, there's really kind of three elements to that. There's kind of the overall structure for how we're going to manage our processes. All right, and, and I'll come back to that. Then there's the roles themselves, who, and what accountability, responsibility lies where. And, and the third is the standards, the processes for managing your process. Sounds a little bit self-serving, but there are processes to design a process, to measure a process, etc. So knowing what the standards, the processes, and the tools that you're going to use are. Uh, so I think of governance around structure, roles, and then the standards, processes, and tools. So uh, real quick, I'll touch on each a little bit more. Uh, On structure, uh, oftentimes what we'll find is that if you're doing true enterprise-wide business process management, you have to have some core centralized group, one or more people that come together and say, we're going to orchestrate this for the organization. Uh, They will will sit back and they will be the ones responsible for developing and maintaining the standards, the tools, the processes that I mentioned. Um, so so uh, that will be in there. But they also help to administer and orchestrate and connect process owners together and, and et cetera. Uh, the, so the structure is typically there is that, that centralized or core group that, that's gonna give continuity. There's also typically a leadership team. Senior leadership team, call it a steering group, etc. It can be your executive team or leadership team that already, already exists, or it can be a separate steering group that's formed. But you have to have leaders that look at this and, and they authorize and approve what that core team does. So that gives it the authority. We are gonna do it, we're gonna do it this way, we're gonna use these tools. And while the core team can put in place what that is, this this leadership team or, or steering group says, and that is it, now everybody, you, you should one, adhere and, and comply to that for the good of the business. So a core team and a steering group usually exist. And then the additional structure typically is the process owners that I mentioned before, the two types. Um, and, uh, and with those pieces, you've got the basic structure of governance, all right? But then ultimately, what is the interaction model? So for, for the various roles, who does what, all right? The core team, the steering group, the process owners, um, we've talked about in, in a little bit here, but typically there's some additional roles. There may be process champions or subject matter experts out in the business, so you want to define how they work with the process owners. You want to define um, perhaps uh, a a process steward or or a process architect that does all of the hands-on kind of work for the process owner, especially for those senior leader high-level processes. And there may be other roles that get defined, so knowing what those roles are and how the different people interact to give continuity to managing your process is very important. And that goes beyond just the process management roles, but the business roles. You've got business unit leaders, you've got directors, you've got supervisors, etc. So you have to understand how the process owners, the process architects, the champions SMEs fit together and work with functional owners, managers, directors, etc. So that integration and understanding connection to the business and how work gets done and performance is achieved very important. Um, So so that's there. Um, When it comes to the standards, processes and tools, Oftentimes you'll have have something around the process framework. This is our framework, here's how we adapt it if we need to. You can make a change request, who can review, approve and make the change to the framework. Uh, You'll have processes for how you document and capture process knowledge. If you're using racing charts, do you want them all in the same tool or template? Uh, That all then can be defined, approved, deployed and supported through training and other factors, you know, hands-on support, et cetera, to the organization. So thinking through how you're going to do process management and taking those basic concepts, structure roles, and then the standards, processes, and tools, and putting in place the right amount. If it's an enterprise approach you're after, it's going to be more rigorous, but you may build it up in phases, right, over time. Don't go for a a, a full-fledged governance on day one because it takes a while to put it in place and get people engaged. What is that balance of the right amount of governance for an enterprise approach as you're starting? Or if you're mature and five years into your journey, what should it look like? Versus if you're in one of those groups that says, we don't really own process management, but we aspire to apply the principles, then you can say, what are the minimum pieces of structure, roles and and standards and tools that you need? But those are the pieces that really go into governance. Um, And there are different looks and feels for governance for different organizations. We have a number of case studies, and other content uh, on our APQC knowledge base if you're interested in seeing some examples of what governance does look like um, that you can then replicate or emulate uh, as needed. Do
0: you have anything to add to that, Holly? No, I think Jeff covered that fully. Okay. So the next one is how can you quantify opportunity in results in a language that the entire organization can understand?
2: Uh, I'll take that one. the first thing that you have to think about is that you have to link opportunity results into kind of business issues or value. Uh, I know I kind of sound like a broken record talking about the value, but really it's about, I mean, when you t- take a step back and you look at process management, really it is all about improving performance management for the organization. You know, to improve how the organization performs, you really have to understand how work gets done and improve it so that it helps the overall performance. Uh, Some organizations um, that we've done case studies with and we've talked to, what they want to do is make sure then that their processes have measures that align with some very key criteria that is in a language the organization talks about. So cost cutting, cycle time, things like that, while they're important information and, and important productivity measures, that's not language that's going to gel with the organization overall. So instead, they look at things such as, uh, what's the improvement to revenue this is going to have? What's the kind of return on investment it's going to have? Does it align specifically with strategic objectives and and measure its success in the performance measures used for those strategic objectives? Also looking at customer satisfaction, um, showing the organization and improvement efforts, how that's going to improve the overall satisfaction of the customer, which in turn helps the profitability of the company. And others even include employee satisfaction. How is this going to improve our overall employee satisfaction? You know, is it going to save them time? Is it going to help, you know, take some of, simplify things so that they can focus more on more value-added activities such as innovation or customer service? Um, And that's typically what we've seen, how people have been able to kind of then change the conversation of what process management does and how it is important to the overall organization and its goals.
0: Anything to add, Jeff? No, oh, ma'am. Okay. Uh, the next question, how do you get senior leadership support?
1: That's a big question. Um, so let me address that. Uh, senior leadership support, and, and I'm going to kind of add here, for process management or, or at least applying those process principles. Um, the, the key thing, we've touched on this, and, and Holly's previous answer is, is really very, very aligned with this. Senior leadership cares about the business results, customer satisfaction, innovative products, market share, etc., um, and, and that's really what's important. How can, how can they achieve their strategies, deliver the results, uh, and, and then you know, demonstrate that the, the value of, of their leadership and the organization itself? So when you're looking at process management, the question has to be, how does managing our processes more effectively contribute? all of those things, right? And as Holly just said, there's a number of ways that that you can show that. The key is that you don't go to them and say, we need process and we should go off and do this big initiative to adopt the process framework. They say, so what? Why? What's the benefit back to the organization? And that's the key. You have to put it in terms of what it's going to accomplish. Process management helps us to better understand how we perform the work. And if we need to get higher consistency, or we need to get more innovation, or we need to get more agility, um, how can process management support that? Ultimately showing them that you allow them to achieve their goals more efficiently, more effectively, higher performance, lower cost, whatever is driving their need. So to get their support, you have to put it in terms of why process management supports the business and getting that work done. Uh, That's really what it comes down to. Uh, and, and you know you have to look at each specific you know kind of uh, case uh, some owners leaders have a different thing driving them but ultimately enabling them to achieve their results will get their buy-in and, and and transform their mindset in it's not just an activity but this is a good way to run the business through strong process management
2: so I have one thing to add to that, and this is just as, as more of an advice piece. We did a case study with Syngenta this year, and I think they had a great way of kind of tying all of this together. So what they did was they took and made sure that the performance values for their processes all rolled up to the, the KPIs for their big strategic objectives. So and, and it was a great example of how it was able to then kind of use those same metrics from the very high level of the organization and tie them all the way down to the individual process executions. So I think yeah. it's a great example of kind of showing it and tying those pieces together.
1: Yeah, and that's a great point, Holly. And I'm going to jump back to some of the previous discussions also around cross-functional processes, for instance. Uh, I saw an instance where, in an organization, they brought together a team, they designed a, a really innovative cross-functional process that fixed a lot of the problems and interconnections that they had. And when they went back to the business and deployed it, the senior leader said, well, it's not having the impact that you you promised us. And and what they recognized was um, that while they they brought together everybody to design the solution, they didn't design how it would operate in the business and how the leadership needed to change how they interacted, including performance measures and other factors uh, as to how people were being evaluated. Connecting process performance to business results in their scorecards for instance so they had a, a, a stake in the success of how that integrated new process would work um, what they realized was they had to change the org chart and change some of those performance scorecards in order to really get the benefit change the way that they actually worked and ran the business uh, to support the new process so so the key here is uh, you know two things um, when you're when you're designing and managing cross-functional processes don't just think about what work but you also have to think about how the organization does that work and design the organizational changes and measures also, very, very important. Because if you don't do that, you can design a world-class process and it doesn't work because the organization doesn't have any, any compliance or buy-in to doing it that way, right? And, and again, le- leaders expect results. So you have to be driving towards how are you gonna help them, as I said a, a while ago, help them, enable them to get the work done and to get the results thereafter. Um, and so thinking about not, not just designing the process, but designing how you manage the execution of the process is so critically important.
0: Alright, next one. How can we get upper management, this is, this is um, very related to the last question, how can we get upper management to adopt true innovation?
1: Ooh, that's a big one also. Uh, what, I'm going to jump into this and Holly, join me as, as you can. Um, the, when we think innovation, let's let's kind of narrow that to something we can tackle here. Innovation enabled through good process management. All right, because you can innovate your products, your services, you can innovate your your uh, how you're structured, you can innovate how, how you actually perform the work. Innovation goes in a lot of, of areas there. So, so to get management to, to truly... Accept and adopt innovation. It has to be very holistic, as I said. You don't just innovate um, on one aspect, the product or the process or the role. You have to think about how they all interplay to take what is that need or requirement to engage the organization and the different department's functions and then to actually perform the work, measure the work, and ensure that it delivers the, the customer results that you're after. So to, to really adopt true innovation, you have to look across not can't do it just by process alone, but it's it's really that interconnection of all these these factors. Uh, you know, think about it in this case. You know, organizational design, process design, good knowledge uh, capture and transfer, quality control, etc. If you put all those together, then and they recognize that by being open to change, any or all of those to achieve what that true opportunity is, they will be innovating. As opposed to doing bits and pieces of fixes that don't truly, you know, I can innovate the product, but if the organization doesn't change with it, I may not realize the real results that innovation could have could have brought. So I think it's that holistic view and it's a, a challenge, but but you have to think beyond just one of these dimensions. You can't just fix quality, you can't just fix process, you can't just fix the product, you have to fix them all together.
0: Thanks. Holly, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, No, I don't. Okay. The next one here is, uh, how does one create an evolving change rather than try to force change?
2: Well, since change management is near and dear to my heart, I'll take that one. Um, The first thing you have to do is try to avoid the whole big bang change theory. Um, History shows that trying to do a whole bunch of changes all at once and just get everybody on board and get it done within six months isn't going to happen. Um, so instead organizations have to be incredibly strategic and patient in their approach. Um, and a lot of that uses a lot of the typical change management practices. So you have to kind of look at looking at kind of the state. You have to invest in your different change management perspectives. Um, you have to rinse and repeat just because you state something once or you engage people in a topic once does not mean it's gonna ha- it's gonna stick so you need to go back six months later and retrain re-communicate the value of what you're trying to do over and over again and really when you're looking at evolving change rather than trying to force it you go back to that you need the communication but you also need to engage people and you need to put them kind of in the driver's seat as well uh, you have to A lot of the times that's just doing workshops or having letting people have a sense over picking the performance measures that make sense for the processes they're involved in, or even kind of helping work through what the goals should be, but the idea behind it is people are going to adopt things if they feel like they're a part of the solution more readily.
1: And I'd add in in, uh, one additional point here, and and that is that, and I'm making this up kind of on the fly here, so I apologize. when you look at change, if you think of change as kind of a tactical, discrete thing, I'm going to change this. I'm going I'm to make a change to this process, or I'm going to change that role, or I'm going to change kind of a, a measure. Uh, you know, everybody can get their arms around something that's small like that. Uh, but when you think of it from a strategic or an evolving change perspective, it's really more of a transformation. And, and in the studies, some of the studies that Holly has led and that we've done at AQC, we talk about how do you guide a transformation. Uh, which is different than just a discrete in individual change. And, and I think that's a lot of what Holly said fits into that transformation. Transformation is something that's slow and steady and has that kind of rinse and repeat. Let's make a step, a change, let's evaluate its impact and let's decide what's next, guided by some overarching set of, of goals, strategies or objectives. So, so if we think about transformation, um, I, I think that's really what it comes to here. Evolving change is really a transformation, and and you can't rush that. You can't do it big bang, Uh, and and it takes really this balanced and steady approach, engaging leaders, and, and that kind of multifaceted aspect I said. Make sure you consider processes and products and roles and responsibilities and measures and performance scorecards, and you have to evolve all of those to get the transformation. You can make a discrete change without doing it all, but to get a transformation, I don't think you
2: care. You so said that's a great point about it being a transformational change, and there's a lot of pieces to that that kind of help create that evolving change. You do have to engage leadership to kind of walk the walk and talk the talk and, and show behaviors, because when you're doing an evolving or transformational change, what you're trying to do is change the behaviors, the culture, and the norms of people, and that takes time. But it also takes reinforcement at different levels. So engaging leadership, training leadership, getting, helping them communicate appropriately is one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is also making sure that you have those peer-led champions. So you have people working with their peers and their divisions, um, being that communication person and, and showing the value and talking to them about it on a regular basis. Another important aspect is kind of using staged rollouts is something we found very important for transformational change. Um, You pick one group, you prioritize one area, and you start the change with that group. Uh, It has a couple of different effects because, number one, you're able to refine your tactics and your approach by starting with one group. You find out what the resistors are. You find out... Uh, what the feedback is and you can find it now the second thing also by doing kind of that staged rollout approach is because you're also able then to collect success stories and success stories are great because people can then say hey Joe over in department X I know Joe and Joe and they've seen the value of this change so maybe I need to take a step back and think about it again and success stories that can be one of the most powerful things that you have when you're doing that kind of evolving change Great. Uh, staying on the topic
0: of change management, the next question is how can you prepare a process to adapt change management? Um, if somebody's talking, you're on mute. Jeff?
2: Hmm, Holly, do you want to take this? <laughs> I guess I can. Um, <laughs> well, and this is, that's a, a slightly confusing question. Um, I'm trying to wrap my head around what they meant by prepare a process to adapt change management. Uh, give me one second here. Sure. I think one of the things that you have to do is, especially um, to leave it this way, are we looking at it as the fact that, Are they wanting to change their processes, so they need to use change management aspects of it? Um, And again, that kind of goes back to a lot of things we've already talked about, that you know, things to make sure this works effectively is to have a process owner. Um, That process owner gives you that leadership capability and gives you one focus point to help steer the change and how it's going to work. Then you can also sustain it by using all these other change management tactics we've talked about, engagement, champions. Um, communications and things along those lines. Great. Jeff, did you have anything to add to that? Uh,
1: can you hear me?
0: Yep, I can hear Hello? you.
1: Oh, okay, yeah, sorry, I lost audio there. <laughs> so the discontinuity here. Uh, uh, no, no, I think that was spot on. Thank you. <laughs> Great.
0: So, so then the final question that we have today is how do we sustain projects?
2: Uh, Jeff, do you mind if I take a stab at this one, and then you can add as we go along?
1: Very uh, yeah. yeah, please do. All
2: right, perfect. Well, I'm a I'm a big fan of project management and having a structured approach to any kind of projects you're gonna do. Uh, so really, the best methods of sustaining a project is creating some structure around it, creating some guidelines, creating governance around your projects. And there are tons of different approaches out there. Uh, you can Google project management approach, you'll probably come up to PMI and they have books and tons of materials on it, stating out kind of very structured way of planning the project, um, implementing the project, creating check-ins and measurements around the projects and things along those lines. Um, and I think those are great, and those are, are great ways to tactically support the projects. Um, but again, we kind of go back to and some of the things we've seen is that you also have to have check-ins. On the projects but you also have to create some momentum around the projects be it a big-scale organization-wide project or a business unit project um, projects are done in phases so taking the time to take a step back and kind of celebrate the wins so if you get to milestone X where you've mapped all of the important processes for business the business unit taking a step back creating some momentum Creating some celebratory about what you've accomplished and why it was important. It kind of helps re-enthuse people around that, so then you move into the next phase. And you kind of do that in rinse-repeat fashion. Uh, Do you have anything else to add, Jim?
1: Sure, uh, just a little bit. And I I think you were spot on saying the structure is the first thing. So uh, putting this in context with process improvement, whether it's designing a new process or improving a process, from a process management perspective, uh, we recommend that, that for any change to a process or design of a new process, treat it like a project, as, as Holly said. And apply some basic project management capability. The critical piece, though, is to ensure that you've got the project sponsor or, or executive or, or leader. Know who owns the project, who's accountable, and who is is, is the authority for the project. That means that... Making sure that the project is aligned to strategies and objectives, you know what the expectations are, what the results should be, um, and that there's buy-in for staffing and time and budget uh, accordingly. Because if you don't have those things, what can happen is you'll get the edict that says, "Let's go off and fix that. Go make it happen." And it and it's it will you know there may, a bunch of people may jump on it, and then it loses its focus. There's no check-in something else comes up and and it just kind of fades away. So so if you're going to do real process management, you need to get the the buy-in and the structure of of, of managing it like processes, rather projects, um, and ensure that while there may be business issues that arise that mean you have to, to, to delay or defer a project, then that can be a decision that's made, but otherwise do it in these discrete chunks with pro- phased projects, with the good discipline, and that way you work through and get it completed, and it doesn't fade away, and it doesn't. Uh, you don't start something that doesn't have the right buy-in and commitment. Um, because, again, we, we see it from a process management perspective. Oftentimes there's, there's these initiatives and edicts, and everybody jumps on them, and then, it, again, it loses momentum and it fades away. Th- those starts and stops actually hurt change management. They hurt the buy-in of the organization, so don't let that be uh, what what hurts your approach. Uh, manage it like projects, make sure you plan those projects, you get the buy-in, and then you, you do it in chunks that you can really follow through with.
0: Thanks, Jeff. Anything else, Holly? No, I think that's it. Okay, well that wraps up our session today. Um, I'd like to thank both of you again for your time. Um, Anyone listening to this podcast, if you have any questions or comments, um, please feel free to visit our website at www.apqc.org, or you can email Jeff or Holly directly. Jeff can be reached at jvarmey at apqc.org, and Holly can be reached at hlykeho g-l-a-n-d at apqc.org. APQC helps organizations work smarter, faster, and with greater confidence. It is the world's foremost authority in benchmarking, best practices, process and performance improvement, and knowledge management. Our unique structure as a member-based nonprofit makes it a differentiator in the marketplace. We partner with more than 500 member organizations worldwide in all industries. With more than 40 years of experience, APQC remains the world's leader in transforming organizations. So that concludes our session today. Again, thanks Jeff, thanks Holly, and we'll see you next time.